let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the song that we just sang, that one day the reign of Jesus will extend from one end of this globe to the other. The reign of peace and of righteousness. Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray that you would stir our hearts up with longing for the return of Christ. Help us not to become too comfortable in this life. Help us to long for the life to come and to hold forth the hope of Christ to a world that's broken and hurting and confused. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn this up a little bit, I think. I, I was sitting in the back of the room. Super loud. If I blow anybody's eardrums up, you can let me know. You're the front row. Yeah, that's right. That is pipe right towards you. Just cry for mercy if it's too loud. <laughs> All right. So this morning... We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're tackling verses 6 to 13. Verses 6 to 13. I want to start off with just a little reflection on something that I think probably you all could relate to. I think each one of us as human beings, <coughs> we want to be noticed. We want to be seen. We want to feel special or remarkable in some way to someone. Unique, important, stand out in some way. The desire to be seen, to be noticed, it can be taken away. It can go away with deep guilt and shame or embarrassment for who we are or for what we've become. We've become. When shame rolls in, then we don't want to be seen, right? We, we want to cover ourselves from the eyes of others. We want to hide. But we're not born that way. Shame comes later. We aren't born wanting to hide. We're, war we're born wanting to be seen, wanting to be noticed. That's why Naomi... Gave some loud cries, right? She, she wants to be noticed. <laughs> Solve my problems. Whatever problems a little baby can have. I want to be seen, heard, cared for. This longing to be noticed that humans are born with, it's not a bad thing in and of itself. Ultimately, it's intended by God to push us into relationship with others and ultimately relationship with him to push us towards our creator who always sees us always notices us Adam and Eve hid from God only after they sinned sin created that separation we were created to be seen by our creator to walk with him created unique each one of us and even in our sin and shame, God offers a way for us to be forgiven and to have a relationship with him once more. 
But what I want to key in on right now is this, how this desire to be seen and noticed as human beings, it's just fundamental to all of us, all of us. It gets twisted by sin and by pride. So in order to be noticed, we often feel like we've got to lift ourselves up higher than the rest of humans in some way. If you're in a loud room with people talking loud and you want to be heard, what do you do? You talk louder. You talk louder. You exalt yourself. Everyone else should be humble, right? Because I want to be heard. Um, and I'm not saying it's always a bad thing. Sometimes there's important announcements to make, right? But I'm saying as humans, this is a tendency. We want to lift ourselves up. I want to be important. I want to be, you name it, the prettiest. The strongest, at least in my little pool of humanity, the most intelligent, the most important, the hardest working, the best at cooking, fill in the blank. It can be anything from playing a video game the best in my little bubble of friends to um, remembering the details of my favorite television show better than anyone else or to be more neat and organized than anyone else. Whatever it might be, you know, we, we can find even the smallest, silly, trivial things to try to make ourselves feel special or better than other people. We may feel shame or guilt or falling short in a thousand areas of life, but as humans... You know, we might feel like a failure in like almost every area in life, but there's always something that we're going to look down on others around us for with a feeling. I might be just, I might have really done a lot of things wrong, but I would never do that. I would never hurt a kid. I would never steal I would never be a dirty human scoundrel like that dirty human scoundrel, even though I'm not perfect, but I would never be that, right? I, I don't know, can you relate to any of this, right? I, I would never have a work ethic that bad. I'm, I'm, I might not be the most skillful worker, but at least I'm on time. I not, might not, I mean, we always do this ranking with other humans. And it's a way, often, of dealing with shame. The more shame we have in one area of life, the more we compensate by clinging tightly to the area. The one little thing we feel like we can do, we, boy, we, and then we, we find people that can't do that, and we feel better, feel better about ourselves. We want to be spectacular. Everyone wants to be spectacular. Or at least more spectacular than that person. The Corinthians were no different. That what they wanted to do and be in our section of Corinthians, chapters one to four, they wanted to be seen as important, as spectacular, based on who they were connected to. And we can do the same thing. I've talked about this before, but we can feel special because. So-and-so is my friend. I have so-and-so's phone number, and I could call them. They're important, right? I can text the mayor or whatever it is. Like, ooh, I'm special. So-and-so noticed me. 
the Corinthians were feeling more special and important than other Christians in their church based on which spiritual leader they were connected to. Later on, we're going to see that they were also ranking each other based on who had the more important ministries, or at least how they thought, based on what they thought was most important. Wow, those people are up front. Speaking, teaching, publicly, those are the real, you know, spectacular Christians. The people that are, you know, getting the Lord's Supper together or doing the smaller tasks. The janitors, you know, we don't, those aren't as special. And Paul's going to tackle that in chapters 12 to 14 and turn that completely on its head and say it's the servants who are more like Christ, right? But we're, we're going to get there. Right now he's talking about this ranking about that they're doing with the church leaders. In our passage this morning, he's going to give a couple reasons why boasting about earthly status or your connection to important people is really just foolish. First, he's going to tell them it's foolish to boast about anything they've received, including church leaders who are a gift from the Lord to them. They can't take credit for the people who are their church leaders. In fact, they can't take credit for anything in life at the end of the day. Everything is a gift, ultimately. And then Paul's going to launch, after saying that, into a really intense and sharp and even sarcastic confrontation of their way of thinking about life as followers of Jesus. So he takes their worldview, which is really broken, and really, they've just adopted the mentality of the world, of how the world thinks about fame and importance and greatness. And so Paul, using sarcasm, says, basically dresses up their worldview and then throws it in their face. Says, this is how you're thinking, and it's wrong. So we're going to see that. We're going to see that in verses 6. Verses um, 8 to 13 in particular. So I'm going to read the passage now, after the long introduction. We'll read it and see if you can see some of those things happening as we as we talk. And then I'll give an outline for our time, two points, and then we'll jump right in. So 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 13. Paul says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. So he's using them as illustrations. Some say I follow Paul. Some say I follow Apollos. Some say I follow Christ. What? Is Christ divided? He's doing all these things. He's, he's, a, he's using himself and Apollos as illustrations for their benefit. He's not trying to make himself the center of this letter. It's, it's for them. So that you would learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Which would be the, the Bible. See that in a second. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us, your translation might say, you've become kings. Which is actually more accurate, but... Same thing, a king reigns. You, you've become king-like, and that without us. How I wish that you really have begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. 
For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak. Hear the sarcasm here? But you are so strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Pretty extreme language there. So, here's the main idea. Paul's saying, boasting about your earthly status is foolish. Because, first, verses 6 to 7, everything you have is a gift from God. Everything. Second, God's view of what's spectacular is utterly foolish to the world. You want to see spectacular, says Paul? Look at the lives of the apostles. Ultimately, look at the cross of Jesus. That's spectacular. All right, point one. Boasting about earthly status is foolish because everything you have, you receive from God. So I'll read verses six to seven again. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us and go over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Notice in verse 6, again, Paul tells the Corinthians, he's using himself and Apollos, another Christian leader, as illustrations for them. To, to help them understand they ought not go beyond what is written. Here, what he's saying what is written, it's probably a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. The writings, what is written in the Bible, in their Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapters 1, all the way up to chapter 3, Paul, Paul has already referred to at least six Old Testament scriptures to back up what he's saying about the wisdom of God being foolishness to humans. And so Paul is saying the Bible has made it really clear in the Old Testament that the wisdom of man and the ways that the world thinks about wisdom and greatness is made foolish by God. Behold this king who thinks he's so great and so wise that he exalts himself above everyone else. He's going to die naked and be eaten by worms and turned to dirt. Right? But behold the foolishness of exalting yourself. <coughs> you will be humbled. So God's view of wisdom is different than man's view. And Paul's been arguing that with multiple passages of Scripture. Job, Job 5, 13. He catches the wise in their craftiness. 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. Psalm 94.11. And that wouldn't be the wise using the wisdom of God. It would be the, the wise according to this age. And so in verse 21, Paul concludes back in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3.21. He says, so then... Oh, sorry. Um, I think I jumped ahead. Yeah, so he says, no more boasting about human leaders. In other words, don't stop putting your trust in the wisdom of humans and bragging about wise human leaders. Look at this guy. He's really got it going for him. I'm going to follow him, and that's going to make me more important by being a part of his tribe than this Christian who is a part of that person's tribe. So, now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says, Then you will not, if you, if you choose not to go beyond what is written, don't disagree with the Bible's view. You don't want to disagree with the Bible. If you choose not to disagree about God's view of wisdom, he says, then you will not be puffed up in being one fo a follower of one of us over against the other. Then in verse 7, he gives a further explanation of why it's silly to go against the Bible and use human wisdom that boasts in leaders and in the power of the day. He says three questions, verse 7. They're kind of rhetorical questions. They're questions that make a statement, really, because the Christians, the Corinthians should know the answers to these questions. You ever ask a question, but you're really saying something? Mm -hmm. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, first question... Who makes you different from anyone else? Answer, God. God makes you a unique person. Who are you connected to that makes you unique? You know, God, God made you connected to your parents. If your parents were kings, important, you were born into that family. You shouldn't feel like boast as if that was your choice. What do you have that you did not receive? Who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? The answer to that is nothing. Everything is received from God. Everything is a gift from the Creator. The third question flows from the first two. And if you did receive everything that you've received, why do you boast as if you did not? Why do you boast about the gifts you've received as if they're not gifts? Why do you boast about the church leaders you follow as if somehow you can take credit for who Paul is? Or you could take credit for whom your favorite preacher that you listen to is? It makes no sense. They're gifts from God. Servants of God's church. They're, they're gifts just like everything else in life is a gift. And so Paul is calling out the Corinthians saying... It makes no sense to boast about things that God has given you and use that as feeling more like puffing yourself up over someone else. Here's some specific applications for us. At the end of the day, there's nothing that we as humans have grounds to boast in, in ourselves. Nothing at all. Everything we have, we have received at the end of the day. Do you have strength? You've received it. Do you have wisdom in a particular area? You've received it. 
There is not one thought that you have ever thought that God has not thought before you. Think about that. You have, there is no such thing as an original thought in the universe. God is the original thinker. Do you have money? Ultimately, it's a gift from God. That he gave you the strength and the opportunities and the abilities to earn. You didn't choose to be born in America. You were. Even our forgiveness from Jesus is a gift that we have received. A gift that we did not deserve and could not earn. The cross of Jesus itself is designed by God as the greatest gift. That's what the word grace means. I'm reading a book on grace right now. The meaning of grace. A new book. Grace is the word gift. It's actually used interchangeably. The word gift. And the greatest grace, the gift of all gifts that God gives is himself. Christ. Christ is the grace of God. Christ is the gift of God. We did not deserve it. We could not earn it. The cross and Jesus is the gift God gave to spark deep humility in our hearts. So when longings that we have to be seen and noticed, when longings to be spectacular, to rise above the rest, rise in our hearts, when we feel like we want to puff ourselves up over others, I've got a better work ethic. I've got a better plan for my life. Look at them just wasting their life. I'm in better health because of my choices that I've made. I would never do what that person did in those moments and in every moment. What God would have us do as Christians, what Paul wanted the Corinthians to do, is to look at the cross of Jesus in our mind's eye. Behold there, Jesus, in our moments of feeling puffed up, Jesus, the great spectacle of God, hanging there, naked and bleeding because of our sin and the sins of the world. Jesus, giving his life for sinners, a spectacle before the world. That is the spectacle of God, the spectacle that puts all our pride and foolishness on display of the sin that it is. And yet the glory of the cross is that in the horrible spectacle of that cross, Christ was rescuing us, right? He was dying in our place for our sins, and now we glory in the cross. We can boast in the gift of Christ, not taking credit for ourselves, but boasting, magnifying in the greatness of our King who gave himself for us. And what Paul is going to say next is that those who follow Jesus, truly, like the apostles, we become spectacles. We actually become spectacles by following Christ. And not spectacles by puffing ourselves up and glorying in all the things that the world would have you glory in, wealth, riches, we can express gratitude for the gifts of God, but boasting, there is no place for the Christian. We want to be spectacular. We follow the way of the cross. And Paul's going to say, you want spectacular, I'll show you spectacular. I'll show you a spectacle. Look at our lives. So verses 8 to 13, this is the second thing Paul says. He gets really sharp with them. 
Boasting about your earthly status is foolish, he said, because God's view of what's spectacular is utterly foolish to the world. Just think about it a minute. Again, what, what, are, what are some things that humans usually boast in? Just keep this as practical as we can. What, what are things that we might be tempted to feel pride about? Maybe money. Maybe your home. Your career that you've built. Possessions, things you've owned, good choices you've made in life, your good looks. That's a silly one. <laughs> Change like that, right? They can go and they will go away. <laughs> Clothing styles, some ability or skill, or a hobby or a career, who or where they came from, who they're connected to. Go on and on. Now, there's other ways of boasting, right? People boast in how bad their badness was. Oh man, I was so bad. Where badness is a sign of greatness, right? Because this can get really twisted. I'm the best. The baddest dude on the block. I've shot five guys or whatever, you know? Like, Whoa, you're awesome, you know? Well, that's because badness has been twisted into a sign of greatness. So you puff yourself up. How many women? A guy has been with in places where that is a sign of greatness and not simply a sign of no self-control. How many beers someone can drink before blacking out in places where that is somehow a sign of greatness? Proverbs talks about that. Woe to you who are heroes at drinking much wine. Wow, 36 beers and you're still standing up? You're awesome. Wow, so great. Like Again, our, this is grand, right? But our world, okay, can twist greatness. But whenever it's greatness in that, or man, you volunteered 300 hours for your community, you are so awesome, right? You, you're better than others. We, we can just get puffed up. Our identities can get tied to these things that will set us apart from others. Years ago, I used to boast about how little sleep I could get and still function especially in college, as if regularly running on three to four hours of sleep a day was a sign of strength and not just stupidity and bad choices. Um, like I think my seven-year-old self would say, sleep more, you idiot. I'm really thankful for some good friends who called me out on that. They're like, Joel, you're always telling us you're tired. But I think there's more to it than that. And it was very helpful. Pride. That subtle exaltation of myself above my fellow students. That I was burning, working harder, working longer to be spectacular. To be a spectacle in the age of the spectacle. And to all this, God through Paul is about to give the Corinthians a shock about what he views as spectacular in his wisdom. And it's not what the Corinthians think. Listen to these words that Paul uses again. 1 Corinthians 4, 18-13. He says, Already you, talking about the Corinthians, you have all you want. You've got the American dream. The Corinthian dream. You've got all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. You've become kings. And that without us. And now the sarcasm. How I wish... You really had become the reign so that we might reign with you. Friends, 
what Paul's doing is highlighting here the Corinthians, they're acting like they're already reigning in glory and honor with Jesus in the new creation. High and lifted up in the new world that's coming. Enjoying the best life has to offer. You're living like kings of creation, says Paul. You're like Adam and Eve back in the garden. Like they were created to live. Oh, how that was... I wish that was true, says Paul. Because maybe you could use your kingly status to throw us a few bones. Like, maybe get us out of jail. Uh, maybe buy us some clothes. Uh, maybe uh, talk with Caesar and tell us to stop feeding us to the lions in the arena. Pull some strings with the empire if you're so great and mighty. Use your connections, O Corinthians. Then, starting in verse 9, he launches into an explanation that continues to pile on sarcastic language, 9 and following. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. Now, what this is drawing on, the image that this is drawing on is, is something that would have been familiar to any Roman citizen. In the Roman Empire, every time the Roman legions would win a victory somewhere abroad, eventually they would return back to their city, usually Rome or other cities, and there would be a great procession. And at, the, the procession would be led by the great warriors, their banners, and they'd be carrying their loot, okay? and their soldiers behind them, and then at the very end of the procession, you would find captured prisoners of war, who used to be kings, used to be mighty warriors, but now they'd be chained together, usually naked, shuffling along, heads hung low in shame, hadn't been fed for days, and they were men condemned to die at the end of the procession. They were mocked, they were gawked at, they were jeered, they were the spectacle that everyone would come to, to look at. Boo, look at these guys. Just like Jesus was led to the cross among the jeers of thousands. We are at the end, says Paul, living as men condemned to die. And then he goes on, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We're a spectacle, condemned to death, the whole universe watching, just like Jesus. Verse 10, we're fools for Christ. It says, hear the crowds booing the apostles, calling us names, saying we're crazy, saying we're losers. Now you hear more sarcasm. He says, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, and then he just goes Jesus on them. This is the Sermon on the Mount. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Right up. To this moment. This is extreme language. Super raw 
We are the toilet paper of the world. The garbage of the world. The scum of the earth. People don't talk like this unless they're trying to get something across. They're trying to wake you up. And Paul is trying to wake the Corinthians up. He's saying, look at my life. Look at the lives of the real Jesus followers. Who've been walking with Jesus for decades now. You little baby Corinthians have been at it for three years. Are we living like kings? Are we free of suffering? Are we sitting atop piles and piles of cash? Are we hailed as heroes in the streets of Rome? No, he says, you may be all those things, but we are not. Why do you think that is, Corinthians? Perhaps you've adopted the thinking of the world. Perhaps when you got saved, you just added Jesus to your Corinthian worldview. You just kind of tacked him on to the way you already thought about life. That is not the way of Christ, says Paul, the path of the cross. In God's economy, it's the path of weakness where we find strength. It's the path of homelessness where we fall more in love with the hope of our final resting place. It's the path of poverty where we find the riches of God's provision. It's when we are slandered, when people say unkind things about us because we're Christians, that God's praise and the well done that we're waiting for becomes more and more precious. The earth may view Christians as garbage, as fools, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer because of him who loved us. Now that does not mean, all this does not mean that it's evil in and of itself to have money or to have a home or to have any of the things that Paul lists. God gives and God takes away. But why boast about them as if they weren't gifts? We can't take credit for God's gifts at the end of the day. And gifts are most certainly not a sign of God's blessing. In fact, far more often, riches and popularity and power prove to be a snare to our souls. And so in all of it, we must remember, we have nothing that we did not receive from God through Christ. Everything is a gift. As we draw this time in the word to a close, I just want to draw your attention to some of the last things that Paul says in verses 12 to 13. Paul is drawing straight from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says these things. He says, When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. This is the wisdom of God's upside-down kingdom, guys. A kingdom that doesn't rule the way the world thinks. When an earthly king is slandered and spoken of in an insulted way that's not true, what does an earthly king usually do? He rears his strength back and strikes out. He crushes those who slander him. I think that's our tendency as humans. 
to respond to curses with bigger curses, just how kids talk to each other and throw smack on the playground, right? If somebody says a bad word towards somebody else, then that person is going to search their little five-year-old dictionary for the biggest, baddest word that they can throw back that's bigger than the bad word that was thrown at them. And then they go back with the even bigger, I mean, it's a power struggle. Power struggle. And we just have adult versions of it. Where adults act like children on the playground, hurting each other, back and forth, back and forth. The cycle of violence. It's a global reality. It exists in families. Well, she hurt me in an email, so I'm going to send an email with all capitals. And then they're going to hurt me back by not responding. For months. And then I'm going to hurt them back by not, I mean, it's just to respond to curses with bigger curses, grasping for meaner words than the ones said to us, to puff our chests up and shout louder, to respond to persecution even with indignant shock. I'm a Christian. How dare you treat me like that? How could they say that about Christians? God calls us on a different path on a path that looks weak in the eyes of the world, and yet really takes more strength at the end of the day. We're called... Well, let's look at this. Have you ever heard somebody say, um, the bigger man is the man that walks away from a fight? Right? The bigger man. You want to know who the biggest man is? The one who shows love. Not just avoidance. <laughs> Whatever that might look like. Kind word. Walking away, yeah, that is good. Um, walking away from a fight. But to do good to those who persecute you? To speak kindly to those who slander? To confront violence with gentleness and humility? To confront curses with blessing? To confront cruelty with truth and love? We don't tolerate evil as Christians. We confront it head on with radical kindness. And love and truth. Just like Jesus God confronted the evil of this world with the kindness of Jesus and the mercy of his cross. We give sinners what their souls need and what we ourselves have received from God. Mercy. Love that we do not deserve and we couldn't earn. And we leave judgment for God at the end of the day. There is a judgment coming. We leave room for the wrath of God. He will deal with evil on that day. But there is mercy with the cross. We are people of the cross. This is the spectacle then that Christians are called to. We are called to a spectacular love and kindness that stands out in this world with a quiet and steady strength and beauty. A power that might look weak in the world's eyes, but will one day fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. The beauty of hearts set on fire by love, radical, others-oriented love. This is what we were made for. We were made for love, to love God and to love others. 
and to fill the earth with the beauty of God's image as, as uh, will, will be one day in the new creation. So I'm going to just encourage you guys. I don't, we're all in such various, the one, one thing that's common about our church is that all of us have Jesus in common and most of us don't have a ton else. We're very different. We're very different, and I love that about our church, about our church family. Um, we're all very different. And yet, my prayer for each one of you is that whatever this radical way of living looks like in your life, whether you're a kid and it looks like my sibling said something unkind to me, and I'm going to confront that with love and with kindness. I'm going to speak gently to that unkind word. Whether it looks like um, a workplace situation where somebody's slandering you at work, what does it look like? I'm not saying you compromise truth. We can call out error. We can say, no, that's not true. But what does it look like to show kindness to those who slander us? This is the way of God. This is the way to be spectacular in the eyes of God which is what really matters at the end of the day. And one day, when we follow the way of the cross, like the apostles, we will receive God's well done, our good and faithful servant. We will be seen by the eyes that matter most. We will be seen. We will be noticed. And we will be and we are loved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the word. I pray that you would just take this passage and do with it in our hearts what you would have it do. I ask that you would bring conviction where we aren't living up to the call of the cross of Jesus. And I pray that you would bring comfort where we're hurting. And we just need to know that you see us and you love us. That we've been trying to live for you and trying to love like you and it hurts. Comfort us. Help us to draw strength from the wounds of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would just stir our hearts with a greater desire to know and to love you. This day and to the end of time. In Jesus' name, amen.